Today on the No City on the Sideline Dad podcast, episode number 87. Today, my guest is Michaela Foster Marsh, the author of the book, Stachow Memoirs, about her adopted brother, Frankie, Michaela's journey to find out more about her brother next on the podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Hey, my name is Joe Foley, and I want to thank you for being here too. First time, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. I really, really appreciate you being here. This is the podcast about a journey of discovery. And also, I like these kind of like stories that kind of come up today. And my next guest, Michaela Foster Marsh. And we're going to talk about our adopted brother and the journey of finding his, his original family. We don't adoption, original family, but birth, birth parents, birth family from another country, Uganda. Michaela is the founder and executive director of Star Child Charities, which helps out with vulnerable children and women. Michaela's new book, Star Child, is about a Book about search of Frankie's family and love for her brother. And she really expressed a lot of that in, in the interview. I really enjoyed talking to Michaela about her journey looking for her brother's family in Uganda and what she found. You'd be surprised and how it touched her. And also the charity, the Star Child Charity, what they do for the kids in Uganda. Because it gives them kind of a purpose. The kids, you know, give them education, give them things, and they can do things for themselves. And that's important. And also how Star Child Charity started a school for creative arts in Uganda. It's amazing what you can do to bring out the best in people. Really great conversation. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast, Michaela. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me on. I, I got to ask you a question. Growing up in the 60s when you an adopted brother, what was one of the favorite memories you had with your brother? <laughs> There's so many of them. I can hardly, my goodness. I think he was always so protective of me when we were out together and people always used to think that we were actually boyfriend and girlfriend. <laughs> and we used to have a lot of fun with that. At school, people assumed that we were we were boyfriend and girlfriend because we spent so much time together and they couldn't quite relate the black and the white. And then when people would find out that we were actually, you know, brother and sister, I think that kind of spoiled it for them. <laughs> we used to have a lot of fun just hamming it up and, and you know, sometimes people, we would just pretend we were. <laughs> I think that's probably one of my favorite memories is just us laughing about the fact that people just couldn't relate to the fact that we were brother and sister. So they just assumed we were we were dating each other at school. <laughs> well, it must have been different too, growing up in an adopted family and also being a multi multiracial adoption too. What kind of challenges did you face with that? Well, it was very unusual in those days. I mean Transracial adoption just was literally unheard of when we were growing up. And I think, you know, for my mum, we would we would get pushed down the road in a twin pram and it was a very unusual sight. And people were really curious, really curious about who Frankie was, where he came from, why he was in a twin pram alongside me, milk bottle white, freckles and red hair. <laughs> you know, two more different children you couldn't find. And people wanted to kind of touch him and hold him, touch his hair. It was very unusual. So it's just the same way now I go to Uganda, the kids, you know, they put their finger in their mouth and then they, they try and rub my freckles off. <laughs> they, you know, they can't believe I've got these freckles on my skin and then they want to touch my hair because it's so soft compared to their hair, which is quite wiry. So in those days, people were really curious about Frankie. 
And then when we got into primary school, um, we just went into the classroom telling people we were twins, which again, you know, people just find this really unusual, but they accepted it. Children accept that kind of thing much easier and they don't grow up with, with any racism, you know, when they're, when they're young, they're not born with it. And so they just accepted Frankie and I as, as being twins and our teachers finally just, you know, realized, oh, they are like twins. So, which is quite natural. Then, like I say, when we got into high school, there was more trouble then, I think. By and large, we were really lucky in Glasgow. There wasn't an awful lot of racial tension. I think that there was a bit more down in England, a bit more down south. But certainly there was a number of occasions where Frankie was arrested for crimes that he didn't commit just because of the colour of his skin. There was another boy locally who was never out of prison, a black guy who was never out of prison. And when he was arrested, they would just all say, well, they all look the same to us. It's terrible. And of course, they don't. And I mean, now the the work that I do in Uganda with Star Child, the charity, I mean, I, I can now identify different tribes, the, the cheekbones, the facial structure, the nose, the colour of the skin is so different sometimes, or the height. You know, some tribes are really tall, others are smaller. So, but the police in those days would just say, well, you know, they all look alike to us. And dad would have to go down to the police station and, and get Frankie out of there. And I, I do sometimes think, I wonder if dad, A, wasn't wearing a dog collar because he was a minister and B, didn't have white skin, if it would have been so easy to get Frankie out of there. So there was some definite tensions. And then the pubs and clubs we went to, as I say, basically we were blessed in Glasgow that there that it's a pretty much a melting pot and very cosmopolitan. But you're always going to get people who don't like the colour of somebody's skin. So I think that we both had a kind of peripheral vision and just knew if if we could sense something, we would leave. Because Frankie, he wasn't a fighter. He could fight. He could fight. My dad (laughs) showed him a few bobs and weaves because my dad had been in the boxing ring in his youth. So and I think they came in handy occasionally for Frankie. But I mean, he basically didn't want any trouble and could pretty much steer himself out of trouble with his sense of humor, which was really an asset to him and to, to us all, really. You know, he did have a brilliant sense of humor. Brilliant sense of humor. Can you give me an example? Oh, gosh, no. I can't think. (laughs) I can't think. Well, I think just the fact that he would always, you know, even joke with people that I was his girlfriend, you know, (laughs) if if there was any any problems. So I think that was, was, yeah, he just could could laugh at himself. I can't think off the hand of any incidents. If I do, I'll let you know later. (laughs) Well, it's one thing that's interesting, too. I know you're very, very fond of your brother and stuff like that. And in the book, you talk about him in the book. Also, too, what was it like growing up in your family? How was the family with all this? I think the family, I think we were a pretty close family. I think that, I mean, the adoption agency were really concerned about Frankie and I being the same age. And so they took their time with the adoption going through because there was only weeks between us. And they were worried about territorial issues and there really weren't any territorial issues. Frankie and I bonded really well. I think that maybe sometimes I think maybe the adoption agency overlooked the fact that there was an older boy, Stephen. So he was eight years older. And I think maybe it had more of an effect on Stephen because I got a new play pal, (laughs) whereas Stephen was a bit older. 
So, you know, I don't have the best relationship with my brother. Mm -hmm. You know, I love him dearly, but we don't have the closest relationship. And I think that, that, that Frankie and I became closer and maybe that had more of an effect on Stephen. My parents, I mean, they, they adored Frankie. There were some challenges, I think, with my mum. And I think sometimes with some adopted children, and I can only really speak about my own um, self and, you know, they let my own lens really with some um, transracial adoption. But I think there was maybe some testing behaviour with Frankie, with my mum. I think, you know, he was insecure about the love I think because he'd been, you know, given up by his mum, I think the psychological scar there, that wound was still there. And so there was some testing behaviour with mum, which she found difficult, almost like he, he she had to keep proving whether, you know, she loved him. So he would push the boundaries a lot with mum, much more so than with dad. And dad had already, he had been adopted himself. He was very keen to, I think he would have adopted lots and lots of children. But I do think that my mum had some struggles with Frankie and it wasn't out of not, not loving him. I mean, the love was definitely there, I think. But there was an internal struggle, yeah, with, with testing behaviour and pushing the boundaries with my mum all the time. Something happened to your brother and I don't know if you want to talk about that and how did it make you feel? Oh, yes. Yeah, Frankie died when he was 27 in, in a house fire. And it was just it was just an accident. It had been the coldest night of the year and the power there'd been a power failure that night in Glasgow. And when Frankie went home, he lay down on the couch. He'd obviously put the lights on and off and the same with the heater or the on off switch. And you know sometimes you don't know whether the, the lights are on or off. And the same thing with the heater. And during the night the heater came on and unfortunately, you know, it started a fire in the flat and, and Frankie died. I was absolutely devastated. I thought my world had ended. I thought that I would be in a constant posture of mourning, basically. The grief, you know, I was relatively young and hadn't experienced anything like that at all. And also I was living in Canada at the time. So I didn't really have, people didn't know Frankie. They might have seen some pictures of him, but I didn't have, my family around me. I obviously went back home after Frankie died, but for a short time, and then I had to return to Canada. So I did feel a sense of isolation in my grief at that point. But I mean, I have been able to work through it. I worked through a lot by writing. I wrote songs at that time and recorded albums. And I think I used my grief, the energy from that. I propelled it into, into my songwriting. And then laterally, I started to write more books and a fictional novel very loosely based on on Frankie's mother who gave him up for adoption and then I wrote the real story. So for me the writing has always been I think quite therapeutic and prayer and meditation. I try and ground myself every day with with prayer and meditation. Well I mean after that you wrote the book and your journey to Uganda what was that like? What is the experience for you with meeting Frankie's family? It was it was remarkable. I mean, that whole story unfolds in the book and it is it's just a tremendous story. And, you know, I just I think it proves that there's a continuous thread that connects us even after death, because the coincidences that happened to me on that journey, the synchronicities, they're just absolutely remarkable, quite stunning. I mean, for me to find his family 
in a country of like 43 million people at the time, mm-hmm. it was like finding a needle in a haystack. I mean, what were the chances of me finding Frankie? I mean, after my mum died, I found a sort of folder that had, adop- had Frankie's adoption on the heading. And that that had always been really curious as a, as a child who Frankie's mother was. And Frankie, when we asked Frankie, my dad sat down with us when we were about 10 years old. And this is all in the book as well. And he had said to Frankie, do you want to know anything about your African family? We've got some information here. It's not a lot to go on, but we have it. And Frankie was very defensive. He didn't want to know. I don't want to know anything about them. They didn't want to know me. I'm Scottish. You know, you're my family. And I really think that Frankie was scared. I think he might have thought we would send him back to Africa, to a country and a family he couldn't identify with. So... I had been curious, but it wasn't my place to ask those questions. And I knew that he was oddly incurious. And I think it was a defense mechanism. So I knew better than to go there with Frankie. It wasn't until he was older and just actually not long before he died that he started to express an interest in finding out about his family. And my dad was putting the stuff together for him. And then, of course, he died. So after my mum died and I inherited all the paperwork, when I saw that folder with Frankie's adoption heading on it, I was just, I was nervous opening the folder, but it was like I wanted to know who this woman was that had given up my brother for adoption and the circumstances surrounding it and why she had done that. And I'd always hoped in my heart that that she had never really wanted to give him up, that it was circumstances. And from what I could read, that was the case. And it just sent me of my imagination. I just wondered about this woman, Janet Wivugera, and I discovered that Frankie had actually been conceived in Belfast. I'd always thought it was Scotland, but she was actually a student in Belfast. So in 1962, when Uganda got independence, it sent its really bright students over here to the UK to study and they paid for their education. So she had basically come out here to study in Belfast and then fallen pregnant and came over here to Scotland to have the child in secrecy and then went back over to Ireland to complete her studies. So I then had some tangible links and set out on this journey to try and trace as much as I could about the family and about Frankie's beginnings. And and that story, like I say, unfolds in the book and it is absolutely remarkable the journey it took me on, I ended up, like I say, Belfast, Lincoln, Farnham, London, and then over to Uganda, where I discovered that I'd written about a fictional character loosely based on his mum, who taught at a school called Gaza High School for Girls. Now, I just invented this out of my imagination. And I discovered that Janet had actually studied as a young girl at the Gaza High School for Young Girls. Oh, wow. I mean, you could not make that up. <laughs> it, it, it was just incredible. And that Frankie's grandfather had been the pastor of that school from 1950 to 1960. So I also discovered that her that, that he had become a saint. He'd been made canon with Yugira. Just remarkable. And of course, my own, my own father was a minister of the Church of Scotland. So much of that book mirrors reality. It, it's just incredible. And so all of, all of the story unfolds in the Star Child book. Well, that's interesting. What else other things you, you experienced when you were there? Well, <laughs> I found his whole family. I found his brothers. The saddest, the saddest thing was that Janet had died. And 
but I managed to see a picture of Janet the day that I went to get out of high school and she was so like Frankie it was just incredibly incredibly emotional for me I just completely broke down I think just all this stuff from childhood everything I'd ever imagined about this woman you know there she was in the picture and then I was being told that he had brothers that were still alive that Janet had had four other children one one had died and that child's name was Stephen and my brother's name Stephen I mean, again, the connections are just outstanding. And then within about two hours of being at Gaza High School, I was introduced to his blood brother, who's called Frank. He has the same name. Oh, wow. And he looks like him. Oh, it must have been kind of um, an interesting experience. I, I could hardly string a sentence together. I mean, I was just bubbling like a baby when I saw him because he, he just looked so like Frankie. And of course, he didn't really know why this strange white woman was was crying all over him. <laughs> and, you know, th- then I had to try and explain the story to them with as much sensitivity as I could, because I really didn't expect to find that I had all these brothers in Uganda. I'd hoped that maybe I could have found Janet. Maybe I could have eased her mind that Frankie had been looked after and, and cared for. I mean, if, if you think about it from Janet's perspective, she was giving up a child in a white country and you, you don't know what could have happened to Frankie. I sometimes think, my goodness, if my parents hadn't have come along and adopted Frankie, there's so many, I don't know about over um, there, but here in the UK at the moment, there's been so many horror stories been unlocked about children in care in those days. It, it's quite shocking and it's really been bringing it home to me just how brave and what a wonderful thing my parents had done at that time, especially if you look back to the time that they adopted Frankie in 1967 when Frankie came first as a foster and then in 68. In 1968, Martin Luther King had just been killed and we had the civil rights movement and it was infiltrating over here. There's no doubt about it on all the media. And yet my parents said, no, we don't care about the, the colour of the, the child's skin. We're, we're, we're adopting Frankie. And it, it was very brave of them. But if, if you also think about his mum leaving him, I think she obviously did it because she thought she was doing, doing it for the best. But his life could have turned out so differently. And I just feel, thank God, you know, for the blessings that we were able to have Frankie in our lives because he added so much to our lives. And now I'm able to to carry on his legacy through the charity and the work that we do in Uganda and Frankie's memory. Because I've met a family that I have a connection with and brothers. There's another brother, David, and there's another brother, Paul, in, in America. Wow, that's very, wow, there's a lot of connections and interesting stories. One thing I was curious about, too, is the Star Child Charity. What is that? When I was in Uganda and I met the family, not only was I completely overwhelmed by the fact that overnight I'd inherited three new Ugandan brothers <laughs> <laughs> and was trying to come to terms with a, a whole culture that I knew nothing about. But I was also overwhelmed by the amount of poverty that I saw firsthand and also the amount of orphans and children, vulnerable children, and any one of them could have been Frankie. So I came home back to Scotland changed on on many levels and I think when I started to talk about this to my friends and family they really got on board and and said 
you know, we need to set up this charity with you. And, and so I knew nothing about setting up a charity, but the universe kept providing <laughs> and people kept coming along. And before I knew it, we had got charitable status. I had a friend, Lynn Campbell, I put out a message one day on Facebook to say, I'm tearing my hair out. I have no idea all the paperwork for this charity, for charitable status. I didn't know what I was doing. And Lynn Campbell responded instantly and said, Michaela, I do this for a living. Can I help you? And Lynn had gone to school with Frankie and I, so she had a, a genuine connection with us both. So Lynn and I, you know, sat through all the applications and we got the, we, we managed to pull it off in months and got, got the clearance to start the charity. And then within two years, we had built a school for creative arts in Uganda and again, all of that is in the book, how we managed to do that with on a shoestring, basically, and through social media and, and friends. So we now have a school in memory of Frankie for creative arts, because in Uganda, you know, if you're not academic, you're very much left to say that the kids there all want to be doctors and lawyers and pilots and not all children are academic and I certainly wasn't academic at school and my heart went out to some of the children I met who were not faring as well at school. And there was there was one day I, I saw this boy really looked very sad and kind of at the back of the classroom and I asked about him and the teacher said, well, he's just stupid. And I, I remember getting told that I was stupid by a teacher at school and how painful and I, I held on to that for a long, long time. It's probably one of the reasons it took me so long to actually write a book was was her haunting words of being stupid. And I said to the teacher, how do you know that that child is stupid? How do you know if you, you know, you don't know if you put a paintbrush in the child's hand that he couldn't become the greatest painter in Uganda or become <laughs> Picasso? And she said, well, we don't have money for pencils, let alone paintbrushes, and I'm not going to get the child's hope up. And I think it was that day I left that school. I was quite upset by uh, not just the poverty and the orphans, but but the fact that, that, ch- that teachers could call children stupid and that there was absolutely no outlet whatsoever for children who maybe were not so academically inclined and that the country as a whole doesn't seem to embrace the arts as, as something as positive as, as we do here. It's changing slowly, but by and large, you know, it, it's um, not really part of the curriculum at school. So we set about trying to build a school for creative arts to offer these children an opportunity and also to teach some vocational skills that can perhaps lead to jobs. One well, interesting question. Any stories you could share, like any um, kids that gone through the stuff you talked about? Yeah, I mean, we, we have got children that are now making all of their own garments. I mean, at primary level, we've got children that couldn't sew at all and that we know that we're not particularly clever at school that have gone into the arts program at the Star Child School and they are now making outfits. I mean, I thought I was pretty good at that age. I could make myself little tops and things. <laughs> but, but these children and they're giving it the last time we were there, we got a little fashion show and they're making handbags and things. So if those children are maybe not going to be, you know, scientists, but they actually have a chance of making a living now because of our program, because they know how to sew. Even if they're doing repairs for garments, you know, they've got an opportunity now in life because of, because of our program. And we've got another couple of children who have won some art competitions. And I mean, just 
just for them to win something. I mean, I remember getting a prize at school. <laughs> and it was it was a prize for the most effort. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was again, I was never going to get a prize for anything academic, but I got a prize for the most effort. And just to be able to have children get a prize for a piece of art, you don't know how that's going to affect their self-confidence. Definitely. And and that definitely helps their self-confidence, too. Yeah. So it's, it's really, really important. And also, you know, some people knock the arts, but the arts, that's the ambassador of your country. People aren't going to remember who built the road no no offense to engineers mm-hmm. you know people remember who who made that beautiful painting who wrote that lovely song who wrote that book who designed that garment these are the ambassadors for the country so if we can start to introduce this at a young age to the children and i mean arts helps with language and social skills communication decision making they're having to to take risks you know, when they're, they're doing anything in the arts. So it really, it's encompassing all the developmental skills. So to me, a school for creative arts is just as valuable as a regular school. Wow. It's just amazing. And, and listen to the stuff you're talking about. And, and I'm actually, well, we're in the conversation. I'm looking at the webpage now. And a lot of the, it's very interesting. I, I, I suggest people to check it out. Startoutcharity.org. That's our website if anybody is interested in, in checking it out. And my own is MichaelaOnline.com. Well, that's where they can connect. And thank, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. I really do appreciate it, Michaela. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Wrapping up this episode, I want to thank Michaela Foster-March for being a guest on the podcast. You can find more about her over at StarChildCharities.com. All the links, everything you want to know about Star Charity in her book is over at StarCharities.com. You can find all the links in the show notes over at No Sitting on the Sideline dot com slash eight seven. Hey, please reach out and leave a comment, have a question, or if you just want to start a conversation, another place you can start another conversation would be the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad Podcast Facebook group. Leave a leave a message or comment or just say hello and tell me I like how this like this interview. You can find all my contact information at no sitting on the sideline dot com slash contact. So I want to thank you for being here. You know, it's nothing about love of family, brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter if you're multiracial or adopted. It's all about family. It's it's important. That's connections we have to this world. And it's also kind of cool when you find out that when somebody passes away and you adopt the brother and you find out the other part of their family, and then you gain a whole nother part, another whole bunch of people into your family. Kind of cool. It was a great episode. And I really enjoyed Michaela's Foster's interview. Well, Thank you for listening. Until next time, you know, appreciate your time together. Appreciate family. Appreciate people. Appreciate relationships because that's the most important thing in the world. Until next time, take care. God bless. See you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe to the newsletter to receive updates of the show and helpful and useful tips. This has been a production of Foley 42 Media.